0: Hello and welcome to the Mejlis podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Paneer, host of the Mejlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. Kazakhstan is moving ahead with plans to build the country's first nuclear power plant. Kazakhstan has faced power shortages in the last few years during the winter as aging Soviet-era power plants experience a series of problems. Officials in the country are saying construction of a nuclear power plant is a solution to these chronic power problems, but the idea of a nuclear power plant is controversial especially in Kazakhstan. The first test of a nuclear bomb in the Soviet Union happened in Kazakhstan's Semipalatinsk region on August 29, 1949, and tests continued until 1989. There were 456 nuclear tests at the Semipalatinsk testing site in those 40 years. The effects on the people and the land continue to be felt to this day. To discuss Kazakhstan's nuclear history and understand why many in the country oppose plans for a nuclear power plant, I'm joined by a very special guest. Tagjan Kasenova is the author of the widely acclaimed book Atomic Step How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. Thank you very much for being on the show, Tagjan. And let's start with the history of nuclear weapons testing in Kazakhstan so we can better understand why some people are so strongly opposed to the construction of a nuclear power plant. You've interviewed many people who lived in the area when the test started, and, and you've done extensive research in the archives. Can you please describe what happened in Semipalatinsk all those years ago?
1: Thank you, Bruce. It's, it's a real pleasure and honor to be on your show, and uh, greetings to everybody who is listening uh, to your podcast So what happened decades ago was that when the Soviet Union rushed to develop its own nuclear bomb, it had to choose a site to conduct nuclear weapon tests. And it zeroed on Kazakhstan and chose a piece of land in eastern Kazakhstan near the city of Semipalatinsk. And, you know, if it's of interest, I can go into details on how the site was chosen. But just to give you a glimpse of what what happened, over the period of more than 40 years, the Soviet military conducted more than 450 nuclear tests. And I should say that one test could mean several explosions. And the tests were conducted initially in the atmosphere and then underground with extremely harmful consequences for the local population and the environment. Everything was done in secret, and the government didn't care about local people. By by the government, I mean the central government, Moscow. And so people suffered tremendously, cancers, mortality rates, all sorts of diseases. Just to give an idea, babies born without limbs or with Down syndrome really painful diseases that people were experiencing and high rates of suicides and so on. So it's not um, a surprise that people in Kazakhstan, a lot of people in Kazakhstan feel very strongly about anything that has the word nuclear in it.
0: Uh, could you actually, can you describe a little bit about why, why they chose that particular site? I mean, what was the logic behind picking the semi area?
1: So they were looking for a place that would meet their technical specifications. in a nutshell, they were interested in construction materials, sand, access to water. They also wanted a place that would be connected to transportation to transportation hu- hubs but won't be too close to any, uh, major routes, and and I also think that they wanted a place that was far away from from Moscow. Um, they didn't choose a European part of the Soviet Union. They chose Kazakhstan. They called the area uninhabited, which was completely false because the site they chose it had many rural settlements right on the land where they would test nuclear weapons. And as I've mentioned, a major city of Semipalatinsk. It was only about 120 kilometers uh, a bit more than 70 miles away from the actual site and it's not only people in in semipalatinsk but a, a much broader area karaganda and as far as uskaminogorsk so a huge area of kazakhstan di- got directly exposed to high levels of of radiation yeah, so they were driven by something technical, but by their military and political interests. And they didn't for a second think about local people or the environment or the value of this region to Kazakhstan in terms of its place in Kazakhstan's history or literature or in, in any sense. Yeah, that, that, that's not something that even crossed their mind. Uh, the people in their area weren't informed of the, the first test, right? they were not. Those who were involved in the testing program, they were not even allowed during those first initial months, and especially just before the first test, they were not allowed even to pronounce the word bomb, atom, or anything like that, or test. And so... Locals didn't have any clue that would uh, that the test would happen. And so obviously nobody took any precautions. And the Soviet military also didn't exercise any precaution. Uh, what's even worse, when the weather changed for the worse on the day of the planned first test, they didn't delay the test. Um, they rushed to conduct it early in the morning in very unfavorable conditions, uh, rainy and windy, which meant that severe radioactive fallout covered uh, nearby villages and caused um, a very significant contamination of, of, of the places where people lived. How long did they
0: conduct these tests before they actually informed some of the people of the area about what was going on?
1: So um, soon after the test, so tests would be, visible to locals, right? So they would know that there is some military activity going on. Um, They didn't know what exactly, but it was obvious. And then very soon after the beginning of the testing program, the health issues became quite apparent, but also what was happening on the international arena kind of followed the same pattern because by By the early 50s, it was already pretty obvious that radiation can be very harmful. There was a very publicized case of um, some uh, Japanese fishermen who got exposed to a fallout from a U.S. nuclear test. And so uh, the governments, they they knew already that mm, the tests were harmful. And it's roughly in the 50s that people would be informed in advance of very powerful tests. And, and I'll explain how they would be informed. They would say that, oh, on such and such date uh, at this time, uh, there would be a test. Uh, you should go outside. And this is counterintuitive, right? It's an, uh, If it's an atmospheric test and obviously you are less protected if you're working uh, in the field, collecting hay or looking after your livestock, I believe I cannot say I can confirm it but I think it was because they didn't want any obvious injuries uh, injuries that would be visible because the the tests were so powerful that sometimes glass could break or uh, you know part of the ceiling could fall down and and so yes they would start warning people but on some occasions, they would advise people to be outside rather than inside. And and I think this just doesn't make any sense to me.
0: No, I agree. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, well, now they've been conducting... And, and
1: Bruce, if I, if I can, because I think this issue of secrecy and cover-up is very important. So even when they started informing the locals about certain tests, I, I don't think they were informing them of all the tests, obviously. They still never... Never throughout the 40 years of Soviet nuclear tests were local people informed about the harm that was inflicted on them. And we can talk about the secret facilities that were constructed and so on, but I think it's very important that not only didn't they care, but they deliberately hid the impact. And and so even on occasions when they could have taken measures or they could have asked people you know, to be inside rather than outside, they didn't do it, and I think it's cruel.
0: Uh, did they? Was there ever a point where they they offered any kind of special compensation or special benefits to the people in the area? You know, during the Soviet days, for instance, if you were working at the on the Yamal Peninsula or somewhere in, in far Siberia, um, you would get extra money or something. I mean, they would make, bump up your salary or your or your social benefits to kind of compensate for the fact it was a hardship area, so to speak, to work in. Did they ever implement any kind of programs um, to help the people that were living in this affected area in the and the uh, semi Palatinsk?
1: And, Bruce, and this is where we have to make a distinc- distinction between local people who actually lived in Kazakhstan and scientists and technical personnel who would be sent to the polygon. And there is a difference. So if initially those who were brought to construct the polygon and work at the testing site, they also experienced hardships and so on. With time, the settlement where they lived, uh, the town of Kurchatov became quite, uh, I don't want to say prosperous, but it was very well uh, looked after. They had special supply of foodstuff, you know, delicacies that would not be available in in regular Soviet stores. You know, so it was kind of a prestigious, in a way, partly difficult assignment because you were uh, watched by KGB and so on, but at the same time, prestigious, and you had good social uh, services and everything in Kurchatov, while the local people, people of Kazakhstan, they didn't have any benefits during the Soviet period.
0: Okay you know you you interviewed a lot of people that were living out there uh, or the the people you know the grandchildren or some, of people who were living out there can you can you talk about one or two of the most compelling stories haunting stories that that people told you about what it was like to live there in those days
1: a school teacher comes to mind. Uh, so it was a person who I interviewed on several occasions. Uh, he's retired now, but he used to be a, a school teacher in one of the villages next to the former testing site. It wasn't during our first interaction, I think it was the second time that I was speaking to him. And he was telling me the stories of his classmates and neighbors and his family members. And he was telling me their stories in a very calm w- way, right? So not, you know, in a, in a very, in, you know, in no way dramatic manner or anything. And then somewhere in the middle of his narrative, he mentioned almost matter-of-factly, oh, and by the way, my own son died by suicide. Uh, he hung himself. And, and I think this was such a, not I think I, I can for sure tell you that it was such a painful moment for me, and, and and especially because of how he tried to put it, you know, he, he almost tried to hit it among all these other facts that he was recounting, and I think it's maybe partly a defense mechanism or I don't know what it was, but when I think about the story, I always think that the way he told it in such a calm manner it was actually more piercing even if he would scream and to me it's just one of the moments when i could feel with my entire body the the kind of tragedy uh that people had to go through and that they had to almost accept it and learn to live with it and so that's one of the stories and Another story, another story is more a collection of the theme. And I think it's, you know, when I interview people who are adults now, it's the theme of how they as, as children didn't have any clue of, of why they were encountering, for example, strange things uh, such as a lamb that had, I don't know, an extra limb, or um, somebody saw a, a lamb with two heads, and and you can imagine. Of course, you know, as a grown up now, I'm listening to those stories, and I think how traumatizing this could be, and and, and just this sense. Um, and somebody asked me, "Could we? Could we? Can we complain somewhere? Is there?" Is there any organization that would defend our rights as children? And, and so that's the another theme that I think is so powerful. It's the fact that these kids were exposed to all of those effects, both visible and invisible, and that nobody, nobody cared to protect them.
0: Okay, let's move ahead just a little bit. Um, this was that region actually, you know, in the days of Glasnost, the last years of the Soviet Union, uh, formed a connection. There was this uh, Nevada Semipalatinsk group that was fighting against nuclear testing. Can you speak a little bit about them because they helped a lot with closing the testing site?
1: I think it's a wonderful story of civil society making a huge difference. Regular people making a huge difference, and for political reasons, I think the role of the anti-nuclear movement in Kazakhstan didn't receive the light it deserved uh, because lots of attention was more focused on the first president, Nazarbayev, and his role. His role, of course, was also of uh, immense importance, but even within Kazakhstan, there was not enough of appreciation of what regular people did, you know, in order for the site to be closed. So it was a, a huge Movement um, that was born under the leadership of the Kazakh writer and political leader, Oljas Suleimenov. What was amazing about the movement was that even in the time of no internet, no social media, within days they had millions of signatures on the petitions to close the testing site and that they had thousands of people who would come out to those rallies and protests and and just really push, uh, I would say, both the central government in Moscow, but also the local government, the government of Kazakhstan, in the direction of closing the, the site. So uh, the, the role of just these regular people who were out there, you, you know, taking part in those rallies, they're their unsung heroes because obviously it was a fight and a struggle with Moscow on different levels because Kazakhstan's political establishment was also uh, engaged in its own fight, right? But it was late 80s, Kazakh leaders were kind of not the same, but they were still Soviet apparatchiks as well, right? And, and and so initially, they were much more timid in how they communicated with Moscow, obviously asking to reduce the number of tests or to reduce the, the power of those tests. But it was the popular movement that almost gave them a shield that they could tell Moscow, look, our people are protesting and we really have to do something. And I think it's a story of how really Kazakhstan on different levels got together and reclaimed agency over its own land. Uh, There are many angles to the story. Of course, the, the strengthening of political power and standing of Nazarbayev himself and so on as part of this process. But if we look at it in broader political sense, this is a story of how Different parts of Kazakh society came together and pushed for something that was necessary for Kazakhstan as a country. And and the angle with Nevada, I think it's very moving that from the very beginning, those who suggested the creation of this movement on the first day, the the name of the uh, of the Kazakh anti movement was actually just Nevada, and I think that's so just wonderful. And it shows that from the very beginning, they didn't see it as a struggle just to close the Soviet nuclear testing site in Kazakhstan. It was seen as part of the international effort to close all nuclear testing sites everywhere. And the leaders of the Kazakh anti-nuclear movement, they would say in describing the interviews was that they were really inspired by um, American peace activists. And so... Initially, it was just Nevada movement in the first few days of of the life of the movement, and then it became Nevada Semipalatinsk. And during those two critical years of uh, rallies and protests, there was a lot of interaction between Kazakh activists and uh, international, especially American peace activists. They would visit each other. They would help each other. American peace activists were very inspired by by Kazakhs who were still part of the Soviet Union, right, but out there protesting and, and so on. And similar for Kazakhs, when they would go to the U.S., they would be so appreciative of the experience and lessons that American peace activists would share with their Kazakh counterparts. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful story, and there are some... Really nice recollections of not only American, but just international activists or medical professionals or journalists who, who, uh, who came to Kazakhstan during those two years. It's the period from 1989 to 1991. And they all say how powerful it was to be all together in the Kazakh step under the Starry nights un- being united in this fa- global fight against nuclear tests.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, and a reminder, we're talking about Kazakhstan's nuclear history and plans to build a nuclear power plant. And my guest is Togjan Kasenova, the author of the widely acclaimed book, uh, Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. Uh, and, and now let's move on to, to independence. Um, Nazarbayev is now, Kazakhstan's an independent country, and Nazarbayev uh, decides to close the semi-politic site symbolically on the same date, on the anniversary of the, the date of the first test as it says at the the last part of the title of your book, how Kazakhstan gave up the bomb. Now, can you talk a little bit about what was the situation with Kazakhstan's nuclear arsenal and what was the process by which it, it got rid of its nuclear weapons?
1: So by virtue of its location, its natural resources, uh, Kazakhstan played a very important role in the Soviet program of weapons of mass destruction. Certainly not through choice of its own, uh, but by the fate of it being... A naturally endowed republic. So when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, Kazakhstan was left with more than a thousand nuclear warheads, around forty heavy, heavy bombers, and more than a hundred intercontinental ballistic missiles that could be launched and and fly across the across the ocean. In addition, there were also tons of nuclear material and nuclear facilities. And I emphasize the presence of nuclear material because it's one thing, you know, the discussion about what to do with the Soviet nuclear weapons to which Kazakhstan didn't have access, um, full access, right? It didn't physically control those weapons, but it did control facilities and material. And if you have nuclear material, you can create your own latent nuclear program. I wouldn't say very easily, but basically getting nuclear material gets you 70% towards acquiring uh, a latent nuclear capability. So Kazakhstan had all of this, and it was uh, a very uncertain and anxiety-driven period of time, uh, both for Kazakhstan but also for the international Security. You know how they often say that if if you feel insecure, you want nuclear weapons. That's a very common narrative. And if we take the 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 case of Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan definitely felt insecure uh, when it came to its situation in the early nineties, especially because of its neighbors, two of two immediate neighbors, Russia and China, nuclear powers. With China, Kazakhstan inherited. Uh, border disputes from the Soviet Union uh, with Russia, the longer shared border, and Russian nationalists, uh, they were extremely vocal in in the early 90s, saying that Kazakhstan was an artificial state and that parts of um, northern Kazakhstan were historically Russian and, uh, and all sorts of stuff. So in terms of national security, definitely not a very... Good situation. Also, India and Pakistan not far away. And so, while Kazakhstan understood that, I think Kazakh leaders early on understood that they would need to give up nuclear path. Otherwise, they would not survive as a sovereign state because they desperately needed recognition foreign direct investment, foreign technology, and they knew they wouldn't get all of that if they tried to push their way into a nuclear club. But at the same time, they needed to make sure that they did everything to protect their security and minimize the risks. And that's why for Kazakhstan, a lot of this decision-making process and negotiations on the fate of the Soviet nuclear weapons and then decisions on, on, on nuclear material and so on, it The focus for Kazakhstan was very much on receiving security guarantees uh, or assurances. In Russian, there is no difference between the word assurance and and security uh, and guarantee. In English, there is a difference. And uh, for anybody interested, please read my book, (laughs) because what Kazakhstan got and what Ukraine got, uh, got, it's more assurances rather than guarantees, but... Yes. So that was the, the primary, that was the priority for Kazakhstan and similar for Ukraine. And, and just to bring us to today and, you know, with all the discussion with what's happening with Russia's war against Ukraine, I can speak on Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan's negotiators fought really hard to have Uh, those security assurances that were codified in U.S.-Kazakhstan Charter on Democratic Partnership and in the Budapest Memorandum. And these were very important documents, and they had a lot of value for Kazakhstan. And now when I get, you know, questions uh, uh, very frequently, whether Kazakhstan and Ukraine made a mistake by giving up nuclear weapons, I always say that we really should put the light on Russia, on why Russia was allowed to go against all the commitments that were given uh, under the umbrella of those security assurances, rather than trying to blame Kazakhstan and Ukraine that they somehow made a mistake, when in reality, they made the right choice I believe they made the right choice for, for their sovereignty, for their independence, for their standing as newly independent states, and they also did the right thing for the international security. And And I'm happy to discuss this more, but that's uh, the, the conversation within Kazakhstan was along those lines, uh, getting security assurances, guarantees in return for a non-nuclear path with an understanding that in order to become an independent, sovereign state, it had to enter the international community on good terms and with access to foreign technology and foreign investment, and that was only possible if you had if you if you were complying with the norms that existed.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, uh, before we get onto the nuclear power plant, I want to go back to Semipalatinsk for just a moment, I, and I was hoping you could describe what the what the situation is like there now. I passed through there at, in late nineteen ninety two. It was a very unwholesome area um, you know, to go through. I remember it, it was bleak. It looked in parts where there were no people living or, or abandoned houses. I mean, it had the post-apocalyptic feel to it. The, the guy at the uh, museum in Kurchatov actually let me in to the nuclear museum. I was the only person there. And, um, and he showed me around. And they had a, a, a just – it was almost a house of horrors in places, photographs, you know, fetuses in jars of uh, that had been misshapen, and and they had done abortions and stuff. And you know, wh- what does it look like today? Because I know that it was just a couple of years ago, the government said that this land was no longer military property, and they were willing to restore areas uh, to people that wanted to, you know, engage in livestock or farm or something. I mean, is it is it any better there,
1: Uh Bruce? I'll just add maybe some nuance to what you said. So the uh, there is a museum in Kurchatov, but I think when you talk about fetuses in, in jazz, this is actually in Semipalatinsk, which is called Simei now, and it's in at the medical, uh, university. So Kurchatov of today is very different from Kurchatov of the early nineties. It improved. If you go there now, you would still see quite a few abandoned buildings simply because the population of the town is nowhere near the Soviet period. But you do have more buildings that look good or that were renovated because the National Nuclear Center of Kazakhstan is functioning and some young specialists uh, go to Kurchatov to to work there, to to pursue their scientific research and and so on. So, Kurchatov of today would leave a much better impression on you than Kurchatov of 1992, but it's not Kurchatov of the peak of the Soviet nuclear presence in in Kazakhstan. I think, you know, what Kazakhstan is trying to do on the uh, official or political level is to turn the tragedy of the Soviet nuclear past into... Not, of course, not a triumph. We, we, um, you know, I think if you ask any, Ka- any person from Kazakhstan, whether they would choose to ever had anything to do with the Soviet nuclear past, they would say, uh, we would have preferred it didn't happen to us. But I think what the government is trying to do is to, to turn this around and to use the infrastructure of the former testing site. All the weapons infrastructure was destroyed, dismantled, but to use the former testing site and what remains, for scientific peaceful purposes or for projects that would contribute to international security. And so the feeling about the town is different now. If before, you know, a foreigner would almost never step their foot in Kurchatov now, they have all these collaborations with a lot with Americans, of course, uh, Russians, um, Europeans, Canada and so on and, and, and so yeah, I, I think you would still be struck by buildings that don't have windows, but you would also see improvement and, and yeah, an and effort for Kurchatov to be a place of of science for the greater good of Kazakhstan and the world.
0: Okay. Um okay let's uh we're getting close to the end so let's move on to the the idea of the the nuclear power plant. Um surely especially with everyone knows that you've written this book uh what your views are on the atomic re- the atomic weapons research and testing that happened in Kazakhstan. What do you, when you talk to people about the idea of a nuclear building a nuclear power plant in in Kazakhstan remembering of course that Kazakhstan is the leading producer of uranium in the world when you talk to people about the idea of building a nuclear power plant what do they tell you?
1: So People in general, I think if you take just the, you know, the 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 sentiment across the society, then you would find that the majority of people are quite against anything that has the word nuclear in it. I personally am not against peaceful nuclear energy and I'm not against nuclear power as, you know, as, as, as a source of energy. And so I cannot say that I'm against nucle- uh, Kazakhstan building a nuclear power plant in Kazakhstan, but I have my very strong reservations. So I guess I have a list of very serious questions and challenges that I believe the government of Kazakhstan must address before it moves with uh, building a nuclear power plant. And, of course, it's everything to do with safety and security, you know, some technical issues. But I think even broader challenges that Kazakhstan faces, such as corruption, for example, Bruce, you're probably aware of our monument to corruption, the light rail in Astana that was abandoned halfway through the project. So... Imagine this being applied to a nuclear power plant construction. You invest a lot of money, then there is some corruption scandal that breaks out, and you freeze the construction. This is actually a real life case, and I'm you know Brazil is experiencing that with a third nuclear power plant that is uh, being built over decades now, and is uh, you know that suffered a lot from corruption scandals, and so. I, I'm thinking about challenges like that. you know it's one thing if you are building a, a regular building even for that corruption is a problem right if you if you put less cement or if you don't follow some standards because of corruption, then it creates issues. But I think with anything that is has anything to do with nuclear, the stakes are so much higher. So that's my main, I guess, ask or my main concern is Kazakhstan and is the government of Kazakhstan, can it really ensure that it would uh, meet all the highest standards in terms of safety, security, adherence to, uh, you know, proper procedures and everything when it builds such a sensitive facility. But there are also geopolitical issues. and, And for example... I, I'm, I'm I feel very strongly about the fact that Russia is considered to be one of the potential partners for building such a nuclear power plant and for me you know the the fact that Russian military is occupying a Ukrainian nuclear power plant is so appalling that I think no country in the world that respects itself, right, and respects international law and international norms, shouldn't cooperate with Russia in the civilian nuclear field while this is ongoing. Or the second practical reason, some Rosatom subsidiaries are already being sanctioned. And from what I understand, Rosatom is already experiencing some challenges with procuring some Pieces of equipment and technology, and getting access to financing. So, if you choose somebody whose military is occupying another country's nuclear facility, or whose main uh, nuclear state company s- subsidiaries of uh, of, uh, of the main sub, uh, nuclear company are under sanctions, you, uh, I think, you are creating a situation for yourself with lots of problems in the future right and and a nuclear power plant construction is almost like a marriage you you know you it you have to commit for at least two or three decades it you know in terms of construction training of your staff supply of nuclear fuel and so on and and so yeah just to summarize i'm not against nuclear power plants Um uh, I cannot tell you whether Kazakhstan needs it or not because I I am not a specialist on energy and uh, I cannot give um, a technical answer on the energy metrics of Kazakhstan and what we do need for the stability of energy production. We might need nuclear power. But I think if Kazakhstan does decide to go this this route, then it has to answer some very serious questions and make some really responsible choices.
0: Okay, Uh thank you. And get to the last question here, uh, which is they're going to go ahead and build this plant. it looks like, right? But, you know, g- with your... your- Vast knowledge of the history of, of nuclear weapons testing in Kazakhstan and, and what it's done, and and of course you you experience dealing with people out there and talking about nuclear issues. The government's going to do this without a doubt. Now we know even know the site. Ulken Ken uh, on the shores of Lake Balhash.
1: Bruce, uh-huh. no, nothing is for certain. You know, I, I've I've <laughs> I've observed so many state programs in the world. You know, be it on nuclear powered submarines or nuclear power plants. I'm actually not as confident that it you know it will go ahead. This time it does look as the as though the government is very committed to this path. But this talk about building a nuclear power plant, it's been go it it's been coming and going since the nineties. So so while I think this time the government is more committed to this path. I don't have a hundred percent certainty that it will go this way, but yeah. Please, uh, just sorry for interrupting you, but I, I want to to make sure that I, I introduce some doubt about how how soon this will become a reality.
0: No, excellent. Because actually, mm-hmm. this is my question. I mean, we know, for instance, yesterday they had a public discussion in Old mm-hmm. right? This is the site that they're saying anyway is is the uh, most likely site for the building, the nuclear power plant out there. Um, but but that's my question was, do you see this going that smoothly? I mean, you, you listen to Kazakh officials, and they sound very confident about the fact that this is going to get built. But like I said, you have vast experience talking with people about nuclear issues. Do you think it will be that easy? Or do you expect some kind of strong public backlash against plans to build a nuclear power plant?
1: So I was watching that public hearing from Olken yesterday, and it was quite interesting. So I think what we could observe was that the local people the residents of Vulcan, the majority of them seem to be very in support of a nuclear power plant being built there i think their main motivation is getting uh, jobs and then those who were against they were mostly activists who came from other parts of kazakhstan you know I, they were either political activists or uh, environmental activists i think and so for now, the government, I think what it's trying to do, it's trying to push this decision through, you know, a more local level, right, that they do public hearing at the play, at the potential site, and they want to create the perception that, you know, people really want that plant. And I, I want to say it seems as though the locals want the plant or majority of them do, but I don't think the question on uh, on a nuclear power plant should be decided just by for example holding a, a public hearing at the site itself and a lot of people in kazakhstan are demanding a national referendum and i think if if such a referendum is held and if it's transparent and fair i expect that the majority of of the population would vote against it. Um, and I think the reasons for that, for me, it's a combination of both, uh, what I would say grounded concerns and sometimes ungrounded because, you know, as somebody who studies nuclear policy issues and looks into more technical details of, of everything to do with nuclear, I, I sometimes feel a bit discouraged that some of the discourse is goes to extremes, right? That there are many factual errors that are pro- been promoted both in the media and within the civil society. For example, equating, I'll give you an example, low enriched uranium under the IA International Fuel Bank with foreign radioactive waste. This is factually incorrect to say that. And, and so similar with the nuclear power plant, I would say some concerns and fears are absolutely legitimate and they should be respected, they should be taken care of. But I think there are also some fears that are there, I think partly because of the trauma of the Soviet period, but also because the government didn't earn the trust of the population right that they they very rarely think it's necessary to explain things to people or they you know they want I think the society is used to government just simply pushing things on them. And, and so that makes them more vocal when they have doubts about something. Um, and so m- my expectation is that on the national level, there would be a lot of pushback against these plans, but I'm not sure whether the government would, not. I don't want to say would allow the discourse to go national, but obviously they, I think, the government is interested in pursuing this path, and uh, they would probably try to minimize the the negative discourse again, around this issue. But I want to say that something definitely changed after Kantar, after the you know what we had in uh, a bit more than a year ago. I, I would say that the Kazakh society became much more outspoken, and it exercises its agency. I think in the in a more powerful or forceful way, uh, I, I definitely see more petitions or criticisms or concerns being vocalized, and and so I, I don't think that the path towards a nuclear power plant will be that easy, and we'll just have to 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 watch the space. We also shouldn't forget that there is probably a role for the coal lobby, right? That there are some other interests that might be interested. F- in nuclear not going ahead. I'm Now I'm speculating, <laughs> but what I'm trying to say, it's, it's not an easy discourse, and uh, I don't think it will be that smooth of a path.
0: Okay, okay. great. Thank you. and Thank you very much. Uh, and once again, that was Togjan Kasanova. Thank you again. Uh, her book is, of course, uh, Atomic Step, How Kazakhstan Gave Up the Bomb. And a big thank you, as always, to the podcast producer, Nathan Shoemaker, in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medleys podcast or the Central Asian Focus Newsletter by visiting Radio for Europe Radio Liberty's website at RFARL.org. Thank you, and we'll be back next week. Bye-bye.